Okay, Hebrews chapter 2. We read from the first verse. For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the words spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified some way, saying, What is man, that you remember him, or the son of man, that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. For this reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him, and again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So this is um, quite a fact chapter, but let's just start unpacking it from the top. He starts in verse 1, for this reason we must must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Um, What is this reason? Well, it links back to chapter 1. Now, that was a number of weeks ago, so I'd be very impressed if anyone Remembered, but chapter 1 spoke about the supremacy of Christ above the angels. So he's referring back to that. Because Christ Jesus is far above the angels, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. And he goes on to say then in verse 2 and 3, if the word spoken through angels was binding and you couldn't get away, 
How will you escape if you ignore Jesus? So that is the for this reason. The reason is Christ is much higher than the angels. And even the law of Moses, which was given through angels, had to be obeyed, and if you disobeyed that, you were punished. So how do you expect to escape if you ignore Jesus, who is much bigger than the angels? So that is the general argument, or the overarching idea of verse 1 to 3. But now verse 1 says we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. You must always be paying more close attention to the truth of Christ. You must not get to a place where you say, oh, I understand the gospel, I understand what Christianity is about, I understand the Bible, I've got it in my head, and now I'm just going to sit back and... um, Take it easy. No, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. There is a tendency, you know the proverb, uh, familiarity breeds contempt. There is a tendency to say, oh, I know what this is about. And you become disinterested in it and by doing so you drift away from it. I mean, I'm sure you know Many people, I sure do know many people who, when they were younger, they were eager about the Word of God. They were involved in all kinds of Christian associations and activities in their young days or even in their student days. But then life got a bit busy, life got a bit involved, and well, they just started sort of Trimming down on the Bible studies, the church attendance, paying attention to the word, the private reading of the word, the contemplating of the word. That's just, there hasn't quite been enough time for that. And then 10, 15 years later you find some of them, they never go to church, they don't care. It's not that they've become atheists, it's not that they've openly rebelled against God, they still believe the Bible, they still believe in Jesus, they still believe Christianity, but it's making no difference to their lives. It's just a far away forgotten good old times when they had time for these things. And of course some people just take it a step further and they just turn away altogether. They just say, oh well, that stuff was nice, I used to believe it, but it's all for children, I'm growing up now, it doesn't work in the real world. That kind of thing. <coughs> scripture does warn you about people falling away from the faith. Scripture does warn you about people drifting away. So we must pay more close attention. In fact, this translation says much closer attention. And he says, if we do that, that will keep you from drifting away. So if you want to safeguard yourself from drifting away, pay much closer attention to what you have heard. Think on the word. Read the word. Meditate on the word. Don't just be content to always stay at the same level of knowledge and thinking about these things. Pay close attention. At the same time, 
you can't have this idea of paying close attention if you're going to divorce it from obedience. The idea of paying close attention isn't just, oh, read the Bible often, study the Bible often. No, it includes the idea of obeying what Jesus says, of putting the word into practice. Because he speaks in verse 2 about disobedience, about transgressions. So, we must pay close attention to what we have heard and actually do it. There might be some things in the word which you've known about for a long time, but you've been putting it off. Well, stop putting it off. Start doing it. Um, don't just let it linger. You know, oh yeah, I've still got to pay attention to that. No, pay attention to it. Implement it, obey it, do it, so that you do not drift away. He goes on in verse 2, for if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, literally in the Greek, steadfast. If the word that was spoken through angels, that's speaking about the law of Moses, as I said. Galatians 3 speaks about um, the law of Moses being given through the agency uh, of angels. Moses was the mediator and was given through the agency of angels. The word spoken through angels proved unalterable. You couldn't ignore the law of Moses and escape. Even the law of Moses stood forth. And Jesus says in Matthew 5 that heaven and earth shall disappear, but not the least stroke of a pen of the law shall disappear. Um, Jesus fulfilled the law, but he hasn't done away with the law, he has fulfilled the law. Therefore, certain of the things in the Old Testament we need no longer keep literally, because Jesus is the fulfillment of that. But none of the law has passed away. The law stands. It's unalterable, it's steadfast. And that was only the word spoken through angels. That was unalterable. And every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. If you broke the law of Moses, you died. God does not overlook transgression. God punishes sin. He says, the guys in the Old Testament didn't get away breaking the law of Moses. They will not get away before the judgment seat of God with breaking the law of Moses. You see a demonstration of that early on in the books of Moses where after the law was given, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And they held him in custody. And God said he must be stoned. There was no getting around it. There was no, oh, we'll just sweep justice under the rug, we'll just forgive, we'll just forgive. Every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. God was not overreacting. God does not give you more than you deserve when he punishes you. He gives you a just penalty. Now he says, if that was so, and it was so, the law given through 
angels were steadfast, and every act of disobedience was punished. He says, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? How will we escape if we ignore Jesus? Jesus didn't come to earth as a man and die on a cross and rise again from the dead on the third day and descend into heaven because he had nothing better to do. Jesus didn't just hang on a cross because, oh, that was a nice thing to do. It's the most important thing that ever happened. God walked this earth. God became a man. God bore the punishment for our sin on the cross. God rose again from the dead on the third day. This isn't stuff you can ignore. And yet, is that not the sad truth? That most people who consider themselves Christian have got at least 20 other things on their list of priorities before thinking about the cross. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, he's my saviour. I love him. But, I mean, I've got a lot of other important stuff. Jesus is somewhere on the list. It's like people are more concerned with what happened to the stormers on Saturday than with Jesus dying on the cross and rising again. We must realize the greatness of the salvation. Because the more you realize the greatness of it, the less you want to neglect it. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It's clear from Scripture that those who have not heard the gospel will perish. They will die in their sins. But it's also clear that those who have heard the gospel and haven't paid attention to it, those who have heard this great and glorious truth and haven't cherished it, that they will be judged more severely. You who have heard the gospel, if you are found on the great day of judgment without faith in Christ, it will be worse for you than for the pagan worshipping the Aztec gods or one of the 330 million Hindu gods. It will be worse for those who have known and have neglected. This isn't a light verse, is it? It's an absolutely serious verse. And therefore we must do what the sentence is saying. We must pay much closer attention to what we've read. We live in a day and age where Christianity is just a little compartment of your life and you pull it out on sometime, sometimes, but for the most part you're living your life for yourself, for this world, according to the purposes of this world. It's not the way that it should be. We should be thinking on these things. We should be obeying Christ. We should not be neglecting Christianity. We should not be neglecting the truth. We shall not escape if we neglect it. Now, 
going on to talk about the greatness of the salvation. I mentioned something of the greatness of, of the salvation simply by the fact of who it is that performs this salvation, that gives this salvation. It's the Lord God himself. This is not a prophet. This is not just a man appointed by God. This is the Lord God himself who's come to earth, who's done this thing. Therefore, it is so great. It is so great because of the greatness of the one who performs it. It is so great because of what it delivers us from. It delivers us from eternal punishment. It delivers us from hell. It delivers us from any, from a future of wrath. And it gives us a future of glory. It gives us heaven. It gives us a kingdom. It's a great salvation because it delivers us from such a great penalty. And it gives us such a great hope, such a great glory, such a great future. Therefore, we can't ignore it. He goes on to say about this great salvation in verse 3. After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So what is he saying in that sentence? He's saying, and God has testified about this salvation in a most wonderful way. God has put up the advertising boards. He's pointed the finger. He's put the spotlight on this salvation. He has told everyone, pay attention to this great salvation. The salvation was at the first spoken through the Lord. Jesus spoke about this salvation. Even in the Old Testament, the prophets prophesied this salvation. So the Lord spoke through the prophets in the Old Testament about this salvation. Jesus Christ himself spoke about it. He preached the gospel. And even God the Father spoke about this salvation. On the hill of transfiguration, when Jesus went up there with James, John and Peter, there was a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Also when Jesus was baptized, a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son. God has spoken. The Father has spoken about the Son. Jesus Christ himself, when he was on earth, spoke about this salvation. Afterwards it was confirmed, he says to us by those who heard, there were eyewitnesses. The New Testament makes a big deal about this fact. Peter writes in 2 Peter 1 that we did not follow cleverly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the glory of the Lord, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
the Gospels come from eyewitness accounts. These were not cleverly devised stories that someone dreamed up at a later stage. There's quite an easy way to see this. I think I heard this from Lee Struble. The guys who testified this testimony about Christ, they were willing to die for this testimony. Now someone might say, well, the Muslims are also willing to die for their faith. The problem is the Muslim guy today who's willing to die for his faith simply dies for a belief. He dies for something which he has been taught. He believes it's true, but he's got no way of knowing whether it's true or not. These eyewitnesses of the first century who lay down their lives for Christ, they would have known if it was a fable. They would not have been willing to lay down their lives knowing that they're dying for a fable. You see the difference? The guy, like Peter, led to a cross, told, well, confess Christ or we crucify you. Well, at that stage he's got nothing to win by continuing to confess a lie. He's got nothing to win at that stage by continuing to say, well, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead, if he didn't see Jesus. If he knows it's a lie, if he knows it's a story, then he'll say, well, the game is up. But they were willing to seal this testimony with their blood. They knew what they saw. The writer, yes, says it was confirmed to us by those who heard eyewitness accounts, true accounts. The gospel is rooted in history, in real events. I mention that because there are these guys, even some of the philosophy, famous philosophy teachers here in Stellenbosch, who are on this trip where they say, well, if it works for you, then fine. Uh, it's not necessary that these things be factually, historically true, even if it's a bit of mirth and so on. If you can still have a meaningful spiritual experience from it, why not? Uh, famously, a book was written called Geloof Sonder Sekerhede, Faith Without Certainties. As if, well, you know, it's just a spiritual thing. Well, if it works for you, believe it. That's not at all what the New Testament says. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, your faith is useless. Also, yeah, the same idea. It was confirmed by those who heard its real historical events. Christianity is not about placing your hope in a nice story. It's not about deriving inspiration from a guy who set an exceptional example, even if he was slightly fictional. It's not at all like that. It's either historically true, or there's nothing. But what this verse is stating is that it is historically true. It was confirmed by those who heard, who saw, who experienced it. But then he says to these Hebrew Christians, 
And you don't only have the testimony of those who were eyewitnesses. You yourself know that God has testified with them. God has testified with the apostles. How? By signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. All over the New Testament you see that the word was confirmed by signs and wonders. God did big miracles through the apostles to confirm to those heathen, to the people hearing the message, even to the Jews who had the Old Testament, to confirm to them that this is the truth. Objective, verifiable, visible miracles And I for one see no reason from scripture why signs and wonders should just have disappeared. I know there's a lot of misuse of it today. There are lots of false signs and wonders and we must be very careful. But all through the New Testament I see this thread running that God confirms his word by signs and wonders. So We should trust God to do that. We should seek for God to do that. And I have heard trustworthy testimonies from people whom I have no reason to doubt their testimonies that God has done similar things in our day. I have heard about God doing miracles through guys who don't believe in the gifts of the Spirit. I've heard Well, I'll give you one example which is known. Charles Spurgeon, the famous English preacher of the 19th century, once um, in his congregation, one Sunday morning, there was a merchant sitting there. Charles Spurgeon from the pulpit pointed at this guy and said, this guy kept his shop open last week and he made nine pounds and six pence or whatever from the day's business last week. This guy is selling his soul for nine pounds and six pence or something like that. Uh, the guy said, well, it was easy for Spurgeon to know that he kept his um, business open last Sunday, but no one knew that he made nine pounds and six pence last Sunday. No one knew. So that was one of the ways which God showed to this man that God is real. But there is a God that he knows what you are doing. And Spurgeon said something like that happened a dozen times in his ministry. Um, I can give other examples, but I don't want to do all the examples. That will take too long. The point is God sometimes gives objective testimony through signs and wonders and miracles. Now, because of the charismatic movement and all the chaos in the churches, people are very scared of this, and we should be careful. But on the other hand, we should not completely just shoot this all off and say, oh, well, we don't do that anymore. There's a big line of reasoning in Christianity. There's a big part of the church that reasons like that. They say God doesn't do miracles anymore, or you shouldn't expecting him to give these gifts of the Holy Spirit. It's all reason now. We've got the word and now it's just reason. Um, but it's still true that some atheists, they won't listen to reason, but they might just listen to a miracle. 
Miracles won't convert everyone. You see many examples, even in Jesus' life, of people who saw miracles, but they never came to Jesus. But God has sometimes used miracles. He uses signs and wonders. Um, And I think that in shooting that off completely, we're just robbing ourselves from a weapon in the big warfare of making the gospel known in the world. So that's something to really think about and really search the New Testament and see, is it biblical to say, oh, miracles have just disappeared? Or is it right to pray with the church of Acts 4 that God would stretch out his hand and signs and wonders be performed in the name of his holy child Jesus so that the word might be confirmed? I do also just want to mention that that always in the New Testament it is intimately linked to the proclamation of the word. It's got to do either with opening the door for the word or by confirming the word after it's been spoken. But the idea is, it is to bolster the gospel presentation. It is to say this is the truth. It is not so that a man can make a big healing ministry and make money from it. It's not so that miracles can become the center of attraction. No. Jesus is the center of attraction. But God, in the New Testament, uses signs and wonders to confirm the truth about Jesus. And that is the place that we should look for it as well. That is, um, we shouldn't be seeking signs and wonders for the sake of signs and wonders. But we should be seeking the Lord to empower the preaching of his gospel so that hard hearts may be melted, so that people will be without excuse. One last thing about verse 4. Do not miss the last few words according to his own will. God testifies with signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, but he does so according to his own will. If you read 1 Corinthians 12, the chapter about the gifts of the Spirit, then it expressly says the Holy Spirit gives to each one as he wills. You can't manipulate God, you can't force God. That's one of the ways where you you can absolutely see that this thing that they do in certain circles about speaking in tongues, they say, "Just, just do like I do and make these meaningless syllables after me and then you'll speak in tongues. It is Totally unbiblical, because the Spirit gives the gifts as He pleases. He's sovereign, and He gives the gifts as He pleases. He does miracles as He pleases. One example from the life of Jesus. Jesus fed a crowd of 5,000 people, or 5,000 men, plus the women and children, with bread, with the five loaves and two fish. And a day later, People find him and they say, what sign will you do? And Jesus says, well, I'm not going to give you any sign. God does signs and wonders as he wills. And that's the big problem for all these atheist types who always say, well, okay, God, if you're there, do this and this, and then I'll believe in you. The problem is, he is God and you are not. So you can't put the experiment out to him that he's got to fulfill the experiment. No, he does what he wants. He gives 
ample testimony. He has left ample testimony of himself all over nature, everywhere. Now, if you don't want to believe that, well, tough is for you. God isn't bound. He doesn't owe you a miracle. He does miracles as he wants. And if that offends you, well, that's your problem. But God is God and you are not. You'll always see when you, when you hear these atheist arguments that they've always got a terribly low view of God. The moment that you, um, start to recognize God for being God, then all these arguments just fall away. So God gives the gifts of the Spirit and He does signs and wonders and various miracles according to His own will. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't ask. That doesn't mean that you should just fatalistically say, well, God will do whatever He wants to do. God uses prayer. God uses faith. God says in 1 Corinthians 12, seek, or 1 Corinthians 14, one of, one of the two, he says, seek earnestly the greatest spiritual gifts. So, you should seek, you should ask, you should believe, you should pray. God does according to his own will, but he uses prayer, he uses the faith of people to do his will. Let's go on. Back to what's really going on in the chapter. It says, for God, in verse 5, did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. Now he's been looking back to Moses and now he looks forward. He says there is a world to come. The new heavens and the new earth that 2 Peter 3 speaks about. The eternal kingdom. There is a world to come and this world is not subjected to angels. Angels are not going to rule the world which is to come. We read further. He says, but one is testified somewhere, saying, quoting Psalm 8, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Psalm 8 is one of those that everyone knows. What is man that um, you remember him or the son of man? And yet, the way Hebrews 2 quotes it, he quotes it showing there's a double meaning. On the one hand, it speaks about man, it speaks about us, it speaks about flesh and blood, man, Adam and Eve, the descendants of Adam, made in the likeness of God, but it also speaks about the son of man, about Jesus Christ, the second Adam. Because the world that is to come will be subjected to Jesus Christ and it will be subjected to man. Those who believe in Christ, those who are found in Christ on the great day of judgment will reign with Christ. That Christ expressly promises in Revelation 2 or Revelation 3. He says that those who overcome shall reign with him. He says to Peter in Matthew 19, you will sit on 
12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Paul speaks about uh, to the Corinthians about don't you know that the saints will judge the world? So the world which is to come will be subjected to man, to the believers, but they of course will be in subjection to Jesus Christ who will be ruler over all. And that's the, the word play here. What is man that you remember him or the son of man that you are concerned about him? Because son of man can simply mean man, like the sons of Israel simply means the Israelites. But of course Jesus constantly referred to himself as this son of man. So Psalm 8 isn't just speaking about the greatness of man above nature. It isn't just speaking about the fact that God has made man to rule over all nature. It's also looking forward to Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, who will reign forever. You see that same ambiguity in verse 7. You've made him for a little while lower than the angels. You know Psalm 8 goes, you've made him a little lower than the angels. But the way the writer quotes it here is you have made him for a little while lower than the angels. Now you see, obviously Jesus was made for a little while lower than the angels. But also, mankind is only lower than the angels for a while because after the resurrection from the dead, man will be above the angels. And then it speaks about you have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. He goes on to say, For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Now most translations... Almost all the translations, and the Amplified makes that very clear, takes the hymn here in verse 8 to be man. But there is one translation which takes the hymn to be referring to Jesus. And unfortunately there's really no way to know from the Greek because there were no capitals. So you can't look at whether the pronoun was capitalized or not in the Greek. Both is true, and it doesn't really change the argument too much which way you read it. Um, on the one hand, scripture say, if Scripture says you've put all things in subjection to man, well then nothing is left which is not subjected to man, but we don't see everything subjected to man yet. That's the one way to read that. The other way to read it is God has subjected everything to Christ, but at this moment we don't yet see it. So there are two ways to read it. But like I said, it doesn't change the argument too much because the main point now is in verse 9 to join together what is quoted from Psalm 8. We do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, 
because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So he says, we don't yet see everything subjected either to man or to Christ. We don't see it yet. But we do see Jesus. He was married for a little while lower than the angels. And because of the suffering of death, he was crowned with glory and honor. That's referring back to, you have crowned him with glory and honor in verse 7. So after dying and rising from the dead, he's been crowned with glory and honor. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So he is saying, we don't yet see the subjection of everything. That's the world that is to come. We don't yet see it. But we do see Jesus. We do see the beginning of the fulfillment of Psalm 8 in what Jesus has done. And as we see the beginning of the fulfillment, we will see the consummation of the fulfillment. As Jesus died and rose again and has been crowned with glory and honor, so we know that he will also subject all things to himself and he will make those who believe to reign with him. But to get to that place of glory and exaltation, he went through the bitterest thing of all. He went through death. And it says because of the suffering of death and glory. The special role that Jesus fulfills as high priest now, at this moment, he fulfills because he died, and because he dies, tasted death for everyone. Jesus Christ was perfect from all eternity. But Jesus Christ first had to become man, and suffer in our place, and represent us on the cross and die for our sins, and taste death for us. He first had to do that before he could rise from the dead to sit as mediator for us, to sit as high priest for us. And we'll get back to that later in Hebrews. That's the main theme of Hebrews, a glorious theme. He tasted death for everyone. Now, some people have very clever explanations for this. For me, it is simple enough that he tasted death for everyone. Um, he died for all. He bore the sins of all. He died for us all. He died for the human race. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He goes on, For it was fitting for him for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. God decided that this was the well-pleasing way. Once again, the atheists argue, well, why did God have to punish his own son? He could have just forgiven sins. Well, it was fitting for him to do it this way. Just because you can't work out why doesn't mean there isn't a why. It was fitting for God. Look how God is described. 
for whom are all things and through whom are all things. All things exist for God and all things exist through God. Everything that's been made has been made by God and God has made everything for himself. It's all about him. Now it was fitting for him to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Now here's the question. Perfect the author of their salvation? I've already touched on that. He's not saying that Jesus was somehow imperfect before he suffered. What he's saying is that Jesus could only be the perfect mediator between God and man after first becoming man and dying on our behalf. He became a perfect author of our salvation in the sense that he represented us, that he became one of us. Doesn't mean that there was anything lacking in him before, doesn't mean that he had any sin, doesn't mean that somehow he was purged or cleansed or purified through his sufferings, not at all. But he first had to suffer, he first had to die for our sins before there could be a high priest, before he could author salvation, because first he had to punish sin. Jesus is called the author of our salvation. The captain, the chief, the leader, the one who gives salvation. Salvation doesn't come from yourself. You don't save yourself. Christ is the author. He's the leader. He's the captain. He's the one who works this in us. And he became this perfect author of salvation through sufferings. Now, if it was fitting for God to perfect Jesus as the author of our salvation through sufferings, then you can't complain if it is fitting for God to do things in your life through sufferings. God can do it in another way, but if it's fitting for him to do it this way, who are we to complain? Who are we to expect better, a better deal than Jesus got? That's why we must continually remember Christ. Remember what he went through. Then this amazing verse comes. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them <coughs> brethren. He who sanctifies is Jesus. Jesus is the one who sanctifies us. Jesus is the one who purifies us, who sets us apart, who reconciles us to God, who makes us holy. He who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified, or who are being sanctified, the saints, the holy ones, the true believers. He says both of them are from one Father. So he describes the believers as those who are being sanctified. doesn't mean that they're perfect, but they are undergoing a process of sanctification. If you're not undergoing a process of sanctification, if you're not being sanctified, then you don't belong to Christ. But the true believers, those who are being sanctified, and Jesus, they are all from one Father, and Jesus calls them brethren. This is amazing. 
this deals with the great theme of adoption, that God not only forgives sin, not only uh, saves us, he actually makes us part of his own family, of his own household. And he says, Jesus isn't ashamed to call the true believers his brethren, his brothers. We often think of Jesus as Lord. That's right, we should think of him as Lord. But he is also our elder brother for those who are in Christ. He is our elder brother. And he's not ashamed to be known as our elder brother. He's not ashamed to call his followers, his friends, brethren. It's an amazing thing that the Lord of all the universe should be unashamed to call you brother. What an amazing, amazing thing. Mm-hmm. No, that is true. No, that's absolutely true. But that's why, once again, you shouldn't just read the verse, because if we look at the rest of Hebrews, then you're not going to get casual about Jesus. Uh, I mean, what he's been saying about, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It's not going to make you casual about Jesus. But it's absolutely true what you're saying. We, You must take this wonderful truth that Jesus calls the true believers his brethren. You must take this in the context of this awe-inspiring, wonderful Savior. Oh, how wonderful that he's not ashamed to call me his brother. But if you think of him, oh, he's just another guy. Well, what's the big deal with him calling you his brother then? Well, aren't we all brethren? I mean... So, yes, but thanks for mentioning that. He quotes in verse 12, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing... Your praise. And it's amazing when you see where this quote comes from. This quote comes from Psalm 22, verse 23. Psalm 22 is the one that starts, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it is the one that ends with, He has done it, which is the same word translated into Greek as, It is done, which Jesus uttered also on the cross. So, Psalm 22 it's all about the cross. It starts with a cross word of Jesus and it ends with a cross word of Jesus. And if you look at that, it's this graphic description of crucifixion. It's an amazing prophecy written before crucifixion was even invented. And then Psalm 22 is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's about all these terrible sufferings. And then... Halfway through verse 22, there suddenly comes a change where he says, For you have heard me. And then the next thing he says is, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So, these words come in, come in Psalm 22 just after the victory of Jesus. It's a start of the song of victory of Jesus in Psalm 22. And see how beautifully it ties in. Because this is spoken, looking back at Jesus who died, but has now been crowned with glory and honor. 
So it's wonderful how these things tie together. And then what Jesus says, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. So he's not afraid to call people his brothers. And then uh, the next verse has two quotes from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 17 and verse 18. I will put my trust in him. Behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Now if you go back to Isaiah 7, verse 14, which says, Behold, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin shall be with child, and they shall call him Emmanuel. Then you see in verse, uh, in chapter 8 of Isaiah, there's a partial fulfillment of that. And then Isaiah 8 verse 18 says, Behold, I and the children whom God has given me who are for signs and wonders in Israel. So, there the prophet was saying that the children that he had was for a sign and a wonder. It was looking forward to Jesus Christ who would be born of a virgin. And the way that Hebrews uses it is to speak about the children that God has given me. Not quite the same word as brother, but the same idea of a family relationship. And Jesus is not afraid to call us his brothers and he's not afraid to call us his children. He speaks about his intimate love for the believers. He goes on to say, therefore since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. The children whom God has given to Jesus are flesh and blood. It's people. And to make people God's children, Jesus first had to become flesh and blood like us. That's the great, wonderful thing. He himself, likewise, also partook of flesh and blood. He became flesh and blood to redeem our fallen, sinful race to deliver us from evil, to free us from the kingdom of darkness so that we can belong to the family of God. But to do that, God stepped out of eternity, He stepped out of heaven, He stepped out of glory, He became a man like us so that He could bring mankind to God. The amazing wonder of who Jesus Christ is. He goes on to say, verse 14, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. He says, Jesus has conquered death. He died to overcome death. He died, but then he rose again. And by his dying, he brought the victory over death. So that mankind who is so scared of dying need not fear anymore because one has conquered the big enemy of all. They say there are two things that are unavoidable, death and taxes. But you know some people actually manage to escape taxes but no one manages to escape death. You can be clever, you can argue, you can 
inject yourself with sheep cells. Um, an aunt of mine knew Chris Wagner, and I mean that guy did some crazy stuff to try and live forever, but he died. And people are scared of dying. Even people who say they are not scared of dying are scared of dying because they say, well, death is such a morbid topic. Let's not talk about it. But he says one has overcome death. Jesus Christ has overcome death. So that those who trust in him need no longer be subject to fear. They need no longer be scared of dying. And they were enslaved. They were subject to slavery. The fear of death is all gripping, enslaving thing. Because people will do all kinds of things to escape death. But Jesus Christ sets you free from that fear. So that you can live for God. Knowing that he has overcome death. And when you really when this really becomes true of you, when you really grasp this, when you accept this, when you believe this, well, there's wonderful freedom. Because, what's the worst that they can do to you? Well, they can kill you. And if that isn't scary anymore, then what remains? And that's why Jesus said, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body and afterwards can do nothing more. Be afraid of him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Jesus died, he overcame death, so that those who believe in him need not fear anymore. He has, he has rendered powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. That doesn't mean that the devil doesn't have any power now. It means that the devil can no longer control people through the fear of death if people believe in Jesus Christ. That is the big weapon he had. His weapon has been stripped away. Therefore those who are in Christ have nothing to fear. Nice theory, but you need to believe it. It needs to be put into practice. But that's why you must think about these historical realities. We all grew up with this. We, we know this from childhood, but Think about the historical realities. There actually was a man, Jesus. He actually died on the cross. He actually rose from the dead. And he actually promised eternal life to all who believe in him. It's actually true. So, live as if it, as if it is true. Think about it. Think about the implications. He goes on to say, For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. God doesn't help angels. He helps the descendant of Abram. Who are the descendants of Abram? Galatians 3 verse 7 says, those who believe are children of Abram. God is busy with people. This verse 16 links in with uh, verse 14 of chapter 1 which says, all the angels are ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. God isn't helping the angels. The angels are helping the heirs of salvation. God gives help to the descendant of Abraham. And therefore, Christ had to be made like his brethren in all things, 
so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the <coughs> sins of the people. He could only be the propitiation for our sins by becoming like us. Totally. He was like us in all things. He was made us made like we are in every way. He was tempted in every way, but he was without sin. He was fully human. If Jesus wasn't fully human, the logic falls down here. But he was fully human. Because he was fully human, he can reconcile humans to God. He made propitiation for the sins of the people. That means he made atonement. That means he brought peace. And it means he averted the wrath. He turned the wrath of God away. And then verse 18 emphasizes, since he was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. What the writer is moving on to is to remind these people that no matter what you go through, no matter what temptation seizes you, no matter how hard the pressure of the world and sin and unbelief and whatever is, how, how hard the pressures are that bear down on you, Christ Jesus has gone through much more. Christ Jesus knows how you feel. Christ Jesus is able to carry you. Look to Christ Jesus. And how do you look to Him? You look to Him by thinking through these things we've spoken about tonight. By thinking on His glory. By thinking on what He's done. Not just say, oh, keep your eyes on the Lord. Think on what He's done. Because when you think on what He's done, and when you think on who He is, then you keep your eyes on Him. And this is the encouragement. He has been tempted. He's been tempted to a degree which you cannot imagine. He's able to help you if you are in temptation. So what should you do when temptation seizes you? Look to Christ. Entrust yourself to Christ. Cry out to Christ. Think on Christ. And call out for His help because He is able to help. So in this chapter we see the greatness of Jesus and the greatness of the salvation that Jesus wrought. Jesus is a wonderful God who came from heaven. He is God. He is this all-transcendent being who came from heaven to become fully human so that we might know God. He knows what it is to be human. He knows what temptation is. He feels with you. You can trust in Him. This is just one of the aspects in which we see the glory of Christ in this book. So chapter 1 we saw Christ high above the angels. In chapter 2 we saw that though He is high above the angels, He came down to us. He bent down to us. And as we go on, we will see more of the glory of Christ. So think on Him, trust Him, believe Him, love Him, serve Him in spirit and in truth. And don't neglect this great salvation. Make sure that you believe in Christ, that you cling to Him, that you follow Him.
because you can't hear these wonderful things and just turn away and expect to somehow get away.